Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Bullshift the Podcast. My name is John DeGuy. I'm the host of the podcast and the author of the book, Bullshift. This is a podcast where we talk about behavioral finance in general, and specifically about how the financial services industry shifts your attention to get you to feel more bullish. Welcome. My guest this week is Preet Banerjee. Preet is a recent PhD graduate, but also a prolific writer and author, a consultant to the financial services industry, and, and a person who's probably a household name for people listening. So Preet, it's a real pleasure to have you on. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me, John. Just one quick correction off the top. It's uh, technically not a PhD. It's a doctorate of business administration. And for the listeners, um, the main difference is if I could boil it down very simply, is a PhD is uh, more of a theoretical and a doctorate of business administration is a bit more um, practical in uh, in its research. But uh, thank you very much for the introduction, <laughs> regardless. <laughs> well, well, it's actually, it's interesting that you should say that because um, a, a lot of what you've done over the course of your career has been focused on actually making things practical and and finding actionable solutions to, to real world problems rather than just theoretical ones. And so there's the old joke that the difference between theory and practice is that in theory, there is no difference, but in practice, there is. <laughs> I use that one often, actually. <laughs> so let's begin there. Let's begin by talking about your, um, your, 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 your thesis and the work you've done, the research you've done, because it's pretty groundbreaking and it deals with financial advice and the value of financial advice in Canada. Maybe you could take a few moments to walk us through it. Yeah, and I'll offer to anyone who is interested, if you want to read the entire thing, you can send me an email, go to my website. I'm happy to send you the entire thing. There's no way we could do it justice in uh, you know half an hour. Right. But the Coles notes of it are as follows. The question I was interested in answering is, what is the value of financial advice? Which sounds like a very trivial question, but... From being in the industry, uh, I would say on both sides, having been an advisor at one point and being an advocate for uh, financial consumers as well, I think I benefit from seeing both sides of the question. And one of the things that I could never really reconcile was the fact that I know that there is a lot of what I'll call dead wood in the industry. And I don't think that's really a secret to anyone inside or outside of the industry. There's some people who should not be licensed to give financial advice because the consumer basically assumes anyone sitting across from them um, that calls themselves a financial advisor or any derivation of that title is acting in their best interest. I think that is the default expectation because it's held out as uh, a profession like a medical doctor and whatnot uh, due to branding and, and so on. And that's not really the case. Um, and so I do know that there's a lot of people who should not be financial advisors. And I also, at the same time, know that there's a lot of people that I'd be happy to recommend my parents to. And so there's a huge variation in quality within the industry. And yet, when you look at the rhetoric, um, it tends to be very uh, black and white in how it, it looks at this question. There are some people who are firmly in the camp that all financial advisors should be shot out of a cannon. 
And then you've got people who are very pro advice and there's not really a lot of nuance. And that just didn't, that just didn't make sense from what I was seeing. It's just not that black and white. And so what I wanted to do was try to explain, well, why is there this disconnect? How can it be possible that I know some people who are very passionate and intelligent who are on either sides of that, that spectrum. And so that was the reason for looking into this question. And to give you some historical context, one of the things that made it challenging was uh, the nature of contemporary financial advice has evolved over time. It used to be the case that uh, being a financial advisor was synonymous with just uh, transactional advice on individual securities. Uh, if you fast forward to May 1st, 1975, we're going back in history now, but if you go fast forward to May 1st, 1975, this is known as May Day in the industry. And this is when the SEC in the United States deregulated trading commissions. And up until that point, which is kind of ironic, but up until that point, no matter where you went, trading commission schedules were the same up and down the street. There was no, there was no real competition, which is ironic because the United States is kind of the poster child of free markets and capitalism. And the stock market is probably the most symbolic thing of free markets and capitalism. And it was highly, highly regulated, very little price competition. So May 1st, 1975, that all changed. And everyone thought this is going to be the death of the financial advisor because now there's going to be a race to zero with commissions. You're going to have discount brokerage accounts being set up and people can bypass that, that middle person. And instead, what happened was the advice industry adapted and they shifted from individual securities transactions to portfolio management. But then the last, you know, and that was back in the 70s and 80s. And in the last 20 years, um, there has been a slow shift towards getting away from portfolio centricity and getting more towards planning centricity. And so in terms of measuring the value of financial advice, you have to take into account that what is being offered by the financial advice industry has also been changing. So that's been one of the challenges when you look at some of the literature. You have academic literature and you have industry literature, practitioner literature. And I think one of the common gaps in the literature that had been identified was that, A, there's no real theory of what financial advice is supposed to be. Um, mm -hmm. And that, uh, you know, most of the measures of the value of a financial advisor have been portfolio centric, which is fine. There's a lot of great information that has been gleaned from that. But in terms of trying to quantify what is the value of financial advice to households, um, it's really just part of the picture. So taking a giant step back and, you know, um, trying to break it down as simply as possible. There's two things that I really wanted to accomplish with this research. The first is differentiating the market for financial advice into the different channels of advice that are available to try to recognize the fact that all, not all financial advice is the same and there's different types of financial advice providers. So controlling for that. And then on, in terms of measuring the outcome, coming up with not only a portfolio-centric measure, uh, sort of a well-established one, which is level of assets that people have, but also some non-portfolio-centric measures um, of outcomes that are more reflective of some of the other things that good holistic financial advice or contemporary advice is bringing to the table. And that is the breadth of advice. So some channels offer advice on, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten different facets of people's household financial decision making. And then a third one was the, uh, it was a comprehensive measure of financial confidence. And this was brought on because some of the literature has basically said, hey, look, um, People are paying for advice. They're underperforming a counterfactual portfolio. We can get into that in more detail, but they're not even getting what is available. And that, that dragon performance is greater than the cost of advice. So there's a net negative to, to some households. So why would someone choose to do this in light of this information? And their uh, hypothesis was that there's, there are 
intangible benefits of financial advice, such as emotional benefits and behavioral benefits that must uh, exist. Um, now, they didn't say what exactly those were, but it was an avenue of research to explore. So differentiating the uh, sort of uh, channels of advice that are available, and then taking a look at multiple outcome measures to try and answer this question as to what is the value of financial advice? And the answer is, it depends. <laughs> well, maybe I can just interject very quickly to say, uh, I think uh, I and a lot of other people owe you a debt of gratitude because in my previous books, I've talked about um, this dichotomy of how uh, financial advice is by no means monolithic. It's nuanced. There's a wide variety of uh, good, bad, and otherwise. And uh, I have over the years uh, endured some battle scars because in trying to point out what I see are problems, people think that I'm pointing out the negatives, but I'm with you. I think there are a lot of excellent advisors and I certainly do not cast aspersions on their intent. They're uh, virtually all advisors are people who are have good intentions. They want to do good things. There are different levels of qualification and different levels of, of uh, uh, diligence and, and what have you. And people sometimes don't know what they don't know. So they can't even correct problems because they haven't identified them as problems in the first place. So it's not it's not a problem of, of um, anyone trying to be sneaky or anything like that. It's a people sometimes just don't know what they don't know. And, uh, and consumers have a very, very hard time uh, sussing through uh, the good ones and the not so good ones because the whole reason they're going to someone for advice in the first place is that they don't feel qualified to do it. And as you say, they're presumptively on board with whoever they get while that person must know because, right. So let's yeah, then- that... Sorry, go ahead. No, oh, I, if, uh, you make your comment first and then I've got another question, so let's go. Yeah, I mean, I was just going to point out the fact that, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, the whole promise of financial advice is that is a substitute for financial literacy. Uh, and so you could say that about any service. You know, if you can't do it yourself, you hire someone to do it for you. So implicitly, that is the the promise of financial advice. And some from some so, research so. as part of my literature review, uh, what I actually found was, you know, if you were to create a sort of a two-dimensional grid, and you look at um, highly financially capable households who are also highly financially literate, there's a double positive for them. They get a lot more out of the financial services for two reasons. They have access to better quality advisors who set you know, asset minimums and they've been in the business for a long time and what have you. So you could argue that that is likely correlated with higher competence or some kind of determinants of success that, that explains why they're still in business that long and managing a lot of money. And then two, because they are more highly financially literate, they are able to get more out of those relationships qualitatively. The nature of those relationships is, is different because the advisor knows that this person knows a little bit, so they have to bring their A game. They're going to be more questioning, uh, more critical of the advice received. And so, again, the quality of that nature of that relationship is different. If you look at the opposite end of that two-dimensional spectrum, uh, look at households that have uh, not a lot of assets and they don't have a lot of financial literacy as well, then in those cases, you don't even have access to arguably the better pool of uh, financial advice providers. And second, um, this is the quadrant where you know financial advice is supposed to be a substitute for financial literacy. And what uh, a few papers found is that it's in fact an opportunity for the service providers to take advantage of them because of that lack right. of financial literacy, because they're not as discerning. Right. Let's move then from the concept of financial literacy to the first cousin, which is financial planning.
And uh, one of the things that your research showed was that financial planning seems to add value. Uh, it's one of those ancillary things that that helps. You uh, run a company, uh, Money Gaps, that that does what's so so called light financial planning. And could you weigh in on your thoughts? Because I don't know if there's research that actually supports one or the other. Uh, is it is it is there a continuum where light financial planning trumps no financial planning and comprehensive financial planning trumps light financial planning? Or is it one of those things where different people, different strokes for different folks? And if you're not gonna do the comprehensive plan, then a light financial uh, overview is better than nothing. And at least it allows you to identify blind spots and so forth. What are your thoughts? Yeah, the answer is it depends. <laughs> and so, <laughs> yeah, you know, I think there's some cases where sort of light planning I don't even know if it's the right word because it's not really planning what money gaps does. It's more of a holistic scorecard to help people identify their money gaps, if you will. And then hopefully that leads to some planning engagement with the advisors. But planning, as you know, is an ongoing process, monitoring, review, goal setting. Um, so it's not just a, a financial plan is not the end of financial planning. It's the beginning. And it's the beginning of all those calculations becoming more and more stale and wrong as time goes on, which is why it's an ongoing process because everything changes. But, you know, for some people, I think uh, a light approach is kind of like a gateway drug, hopefully to a more in-depth approach down the road. But it's not like, and you can maybe attest to this more than I could, it's not like people bang down your door and say, I need a 75 page financial plan stat, right? That rarely happens unless there's some kind of significant money milestone or event that's happening that requires them to sit down and say, I need to take this seriously. I need some advice, whether it's sale of a business, they're about to retire or thinking about it uh, for the first time they've received in here. Something happens that triggers the need to do sort of a more full assessment um, and engage in a more deeper process. So, you know, it, it really depends. So I would say for the mass market, do they need a full comprehensive financial plan? Probably not. It's pretty rare that you're going to need something super comprehensive. If anything, you're just trying to make things work today and hopefully be in a position that down the road, when it comes time where making a full financial plan makes more sense, you can do that. So it may be more compartmentalized um, when you have a less complex household situation, which most people do. I mean, um, you know, households with lots of assets or complex financial situations, because you can require planning without having a lot of financial assets, tougher to get advice because there's not a lot of models that suit that super well right now. It's growing. but. Um, yeah, it, 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 again, in the end, it really depends on the situation. So I think what I'm sort of leaning towards and one of the big takeaways for me from the research was we're failing the mass market when it comes to getting good financial advice and really better financial advice is being more holistic and not just focusing on products. This brings me to the meat and potatoes part of what I wanted to talk to you about today. And that is the industry does a good game. A lot of what, what happens in a lot of what I lament in Bullshift is the industry says things that are presumptively true and sometimes true, but not necessarily because the industry is by no means homogenous. And that com comes down to the value of advice specifically with regard to behavioral coaching, but, but it can take many forms. So I have seen 
uh, three, at least three firms, and maybe even there, there may be two or three others as well that will that have been that have done independent research. They'll call it research. I'm not so sure that that's actually the way it would be qualified. That shows the value of advice is somewhere typically between two and four percent of, uh, of of added value. And um, it's interesting because usually the cost of advice is one or maybe a little over 1%. And so it seems to be that the, you know, the value of advice is somewhere like the two to three, three and a half times the cost of advice. And that's a good intuitive sort of people sort of say, I, you know, I, I would be happy to get this if I could get more value out of it than I put in it in terms of cost. The thing that I find is that when you look at the individual studies that try to quantify the value of advice, they get to similar numbers. They, they have the same uh, destination, but the path they take in terms of the various factor inputs that add the value are um, radically different in terms of how they are quantified. And sometimes they are massive factor inputs for one study and totally non-existent in another study. And if these studies are truly robust, um, I would expect the numbers to be similar. So please, what are your thoughts on uh, <laughs> companies that that put out papers that say the value of advice is X? Well, in terms of my opinions on those companies, um, maybe I'll I'll couch it in terms of um, my opinions on some of those studies um, right. because I think it's you know that that is kind of part and parcel. If you're in the industry, you're you're putting out content, you got to speak to the value of advice. So that I think that is part of the course. But in terms of what they're putting out there. I agree that you know in the aggregate they're they're probably directionally correct uh, along most lines. Um, I think a lot of that kind of is in line with a lot of people uh, what they think about in terms of where value is in terms of like you know financial planning, tax management, all this stuff. But when it comes down to you know isolating the value of this component of the advice that an advisor provides with respect to tax planning is worth whatever they say, 75 basis points annualized. How do you come up with that number? Um, and given the, the, the disparity in tax planning opportunities for different households, it's, it seems a bit of a stretch to really quantify it down to even a, a whole number, let alone going down to, you know, one or two decimal places, right? Like, how do you get that specific? Um, I would, I don't even know if that's really possible given the so many factors that are involved in, in what a financial advice provider can, can do for a household. So I feel like that I think would fall under bullshit uh, for sure. Right. Um, and the problem is, you know, they may actually end up being right about, again, the direction, the methodologies I think are questionable. And I think this actually damages the credibility when you put out stuff like this and it is based on more conceptual models as opposed to being able to truly identify what is the causational impact on, on households. Because one of the things that I looked at, and the literature is rife with this, is endogeneity plays a huge role in how well people do. And it could be the case that someone who is highly educated, um, uh, high financial literacy, high interest in personal finance, um, high income, high level of assets before they start with their most mm -hmm. recent financial advisor, it may be the case that all the reasons that explain why they're 
an attractive client to someone in the industry in the first place are the same reasons that are going to explain why they end up doing better than everyone else. Maybe they end up making better decisions than other people, including when to know, when to look for advice, how to get more out of those advice relationships. And so in cases like that, and um, I can certainly say this from my experience when I was an advisor, there's some people that walk into your office or you had that first meeting, you're thinking, I am super jealous at how much you've done on your own already. And, you know, it's a privilege to take, take you on as a client because you already understand everything and I'm just helping with implementation. So who's really responsible for how well or the trajectory change in that person's wealth? And so, you know, that's another thing that I don't think might be captured in, in some of those studies. It could be that let's even say that those numbers are accurate to two decimal places. Maybe the reason that they're getting so much um, uh, lift, as it were, is actually more because of them and their ability to get more out of financial advice. So that endogeneity component is a big one. And I think some of those studies maybe don't properly account for that. So I'll give you an example of the indigeneity, the way uh, the way it, an ordinary person can understand this. If the advisor, if the if the client is a uh, a simple meat and potatoes high earner, but doesn't have a lot of assets and can only afford to put aside, let's say, two thousand dollars a month, and it goes into an RSP. Uh, two thousand dollars a month into your RSP is the sort of thing that the client might have done whether they had an advisor or not. And if you're gonna say, well, that's tax optimization because you put it into an RSP as opposed to a tax account, a taxable account. All of that is true. But if you think about the counterfactual of, well, what would this person have done if they didn't have an advisor? They would have put the same, and, and in fact, maybe that's maybe in fact, before they hired an advisor, what were they doing? As a as a as a base case, what were they doing before they hired the advisor? And they were putting two thousand dollars a month into an RSP. Well, the advisor then says, "Well, I've I've given you the advice. The advice is to put two thousand dollars a month to have a regular monthly savings program, pay yourself first, put it into your RSP, get the tax deduction." Except that I don't know how you can claim that there's a quantifiable amount of value added because. The behavior didn't change. It's just that what the client is doing, putting $2,000 a month into an RSP, is identical uh, to what he or she was before he or she met the advisor. The advisor is giving good advice. The client is taking it. It has a, it has a tangible value, but it didn't move the needle in terms of actual behavior. The conduct of the client was unchanged. And if that's the case, did that advisor really, could that advisor claim to have done X, Y, Z to have added a certain amount of value, or are they just staying the course because of the endogeneity of the pre-existing condition? Yeah, and I think um, it's a good example. And, you know, I think some people will jump on that and say, oh, you're, are, you're saying that financial advisors uh, offer less value. And I would say, I think that's the wrong question to be asking in, in any case. If there are some people who are more delegators and they say, here's what I got, this is what I need to be done. And I've chosen you because I like working with you. There is value in that, but don't sort of sell it as I've changed your life, right? That's, right. I think the the difference with all these studies, trying to lump people into one sort of homogenous group and saying, on average, tax planning is worth, you know, 50 basis points annualized per year or estate planning is, you know, <laughs> annualizing that. I mean, there's just too much to know to be able to 
quantify that down to a number. And I have to give credit to um, to our friend Jason Pereira for mentioning, you know, the the absurdity of going down to two decimal points when trying to estimate some of these individual value adds. It just it just seems very specious. Yeah, and that is part of what I'm trying to do with Bullshift. Is I'm I'm not trying to slag the industry. I'm trying to get people to be a little less accepting of the speciousness of the arguments that are being put forward in the first place and the presumptive granularity of those arguments. Uh, I, I, I'm with you. I, I'm intuitively inclined to believe that they are directionally correct. Uh, and I'm intuitively favorable toward the industry and what it, what it hopes to do and what it usually does. But if you're going to try to be fancy about what you are taking credit for and and making it sound like it's really robust and 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 so forth that's when i start going oh, come on uh, you're 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 starting to bullshit me now like this is yeah, not and, really that credible and to be clear uh, i'm also not saying that there there isn't deadwood in the industry um i remember yeah. in my in my rookie school um after everyone just passed the initial exam to get licensed to manage people's life savings which took an all i don't know two weeks of self-study um, I remember someone bragging about getting a 60%, which was the pass mark, uh, bragging about that. And I thought, what an odd thing to brag about. And that was an eye-opening experience on day one in the industry. You know, there is across the board to not a high caliber across the board. Again, there are some people who are amazing. Right. And I would have no hesitation whatsoever to say, you need to talk to this person. They're going to set you in the right direction. I have no, uh, no reservations right. about it whatsoever. But I would say, I don't know what the number is 25%, 30%. You could probably do without. And I think people would be better off. Right. Maybe we could have a quick discussion about where the line should be drawn uh, because of the endogeneity. Uh, one one way of doing it is is by account size and the industry struggles because in many ways the people who oftentimes need the most advice because they're not um able to self-assess their own what they know or don't know and they don't know what they don't know and they need they need direction but part of what and i don't know which is the cart and which is the horse but they need direction and they don't have assets and if they had assets maybe they would have more direction if they had direction that they, they would maybe have more assets uh, is there a dollar amount that you think would be a reasonable threshold where, uh, setting aside the Henry's, the, the, you know, uh, high earners, no, not rich yet, the, the 27 year old person who just started practicing medicine, who went by the time she's 60, will be a multimillionaire because her medical practice will have grown and, and she will have made all this money, but an ordinary person who, uh, let's say is 30 years old and is now secure in his or her career and making 80 dollars a year a strong earner but but not a but not wealthy but strongly in the middle class and 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 now wants to set up a regular savings program but has very little by way of savings on day one how can we give good advice and good service to good people who need advice and and are receptive to learning when they come to the table with relatively few assets to begin with yeah, so I think this is uh, as a um, an example of how overall financial services has been failing the mass market and tackling this particular demographic that you're talking about. They're turning to social media for better or worse, and so there is a lot of great information on social media for sure, uh, but there's also a lot of garbage out there, 
And the problem is if you are, you know, being introduced to this role for the first time, it's a long time before you can even figure out what is the good and what is the bad. And some people may never make that distinction because they get pulled into sort of the dark side of, you know, like let's say a Wall Street bets community on, on Reddit, which is all about swinging for the fences and society be damned. You know, we're disenfranchised. What do we have to lose? And that's not really a good thing to do early on in your um, life. Um, and so in terms of a dollar amount, um, I don't know if a dollar amount is the right sort of framework to look at it. I think that there is a model of advice that has yet to be fully explored that may uh, make better sense than what is currently available. So for example, I know some people say, well, what about robo-advisors and being able to do it yourself? Well, not everyone wants to do it themselves. So I think a lot of people outside of the bubble may not realize, or maybe a lot of people inside the bubble may not realize that there's a huge amount of people who are so intimidated by the idea of even placing a trade. That's just not a non-starter, especially for their first time investing. Then we have robo-advisors, which requires someone to have the self-selection into that channel. Uh, as well as a bit of confidence. But if we take a look at what some of the newer social media content creators out there are doing, they're building communities and they're realizing that you can scale basic advice pretty easily if you have a community and an engagement um, that doesn't require them to manage paperwork or manage assets because that's a burden, but allows them to give advice. And this, this actually presents a real problem because this is an area that you know regulation is still trying to figure out. And I think a lot of people uh, in the industry, outside the industry, regulators, government have, have realized there might be something here. Um, we don't know if regulation is currently uh, set up to properly yeah. either grow this potential new model of business uh, or to stifle it. And uh, the short answer is, I don't think there is a good solution out there right now. Yay. <laughs> I wish I wish you could have some more positive answers, but 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 I think one of the things that I learned in speaking with you is that I I think you're one of the people who's asking the right questions, and I think that's you know important of and by itself. We're getting to the end, so I want to wrap this up with uh, my my usual things, which is uh, beginning with that's bullshit. What is it? Is there anything in the industry that if you could have a magic wand and change one thing about the industry, anything that sticks in your craw, what would it be? Yeah, I mean, uh, this is informed from my research, but also just the way things have been going. And that is portfolio management is basically, if not already commoditized, approaching commoditization. And I think the advice proposition needs to shift away from portfolio centricity and either closer towards planning centricity or people centricity. And I say that because if you focus on the person and what they need and understand that everyone is individual, they have their own goals, people are very different. If you understand the person, you can create a better plan, whether it's comprehensive, light, whatever it is. And once you do that, the product stuff, like the portfolios, that is almost secondary, especially when you're younger with not a lot of assets. Probably the far biggest determinant of how much you're going to have is your savings rate, not how perfect your right. portfolio is anyways. So getting that lift off for, you know, the mass market and younger consumers, um, that would be my wish list is to, if I could wave a wand, have, uh, you know, industry or business models developed that get away from portfolio centricity and get more to either person or planning centricity. Which then brings us to shift happens. If it was up to Preet Banerjee, what would you do to change to get portfolios moved toward personal or planning centricity and away from 
the seemingly commoditized and homogenized uh, portfolio management aspect. You got to find a way to sever the incentives. Um, so all the incentives predominantly, I would say all, but predominantly all the incentives are aligned towards asset management and asset gathering assets. And um, I would say that the need for advice is, you know, people need help in setting and establishing the goals, um, creating strategies to achieve those goals, monitoring and review. So incentives that are aligned with planning um, and planning based outcomes, uh, as opposed to assets under management would be a big step, but I'm not holding my breath if that's going to be changing anytime okay. soon. Yeah, I, th I think one of the problems is that uh, if you if you think of the Freakonomics uh, books, uh, Levitt and Dubner will say people respond to incentives. And I think you're right. If we could find a way to put incentives in place, uh, the good news is people will respond. The question is, how do we put incentives in place? Because the industry is being compensated, uh, as far as I can tell, and as far as I can see looking forward, uh, based on assets. And, and as a result, um, unless you could actually perhaps have a, maybe a lower asset fee with a higher add-on fee for services rendered, uh, maybe a hybrid model where instead of paying one and a quarter percent for, for assets under management, you pay 1% for assets, but anywhere from zero to one half of 1% for other deliverables that are more humanistic. And, 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 you know, in the end, uh, uh, the, the total cost of the client might not be uh, materially different, but the outcome could be more efficacious. And that's, you know, a win-win for the industry. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when, when we toss around numbers like that, you know, when you look at people who don't have a lot of assets, you know, even a one and a half percent when you've got, you know, less than 10 grand, it's not a lot. If you're getting planning and someone to change your behavior, you know, that kind of makes sense. Is, is the model where people pay by the hour, like they pay an accountant, um, is that a model that will grow? I think there's no one perfect solution. I think with any compensation model, there are pros and cons. And I think one of the challenges is acknowledging that, you know what, there's going to be some people who can do a lot of the investing, heavy lifting on their own. That's fine. But when, where do they go and get all the other services as well? So that compartmentalization and incentivizing different types of advice uh, offerings, that's a really difficult nut to crack and um you know we could spend hours talking about that yeah. and i'm sure we will you know offline but um yeah i have unfortunately no good practical solutions that we'll see the light of day in the next little while <laughs> well i, I want to thank you despite that because uh as i say a lot of a lot of coming up with with good solutions requires that we ask the right questions and one of the things that's great about you is that you will ask meaningful purposeful questions that can hopefully move the ball forward if if we turn our attention to them and and uh, there there may be given advances in ai and whatnot that we can maybe have cyborg solutions that are able to help people do their behavioral coaching um where where you, know, you can talk to a human if you have a, a personal question but there might be sort of generic things that you can do without that it's it's to be determined but i remain hopeful uh, hopefully I'm not a, uh, a blind-eyed optimist because I talk about the bias of optimism being dangerous if you take it too far, but I think this is one area where we can make some positive contributions down the road, and I think the future still is a bit quite bright for the industry. Yeah, and in the meantime, you know, I think with, uh, I hope, some of the findings of my research and other research that's been done, in the meantime, I hope people can use that to get the most value out of whatever relationships that they have, or to maybe look at different types of relationships with the financial services. So while we may not have the answers for what would be the perfect sort of utopia, 
in the meantime, I think we can help and continue to help consumers make better choices so that they, at least they are getting the most value that they can. Perfect. Let's end there. Preet, thank you so much. I'm so glad you could join me today. My pleasure, John. Thank you. John Degui is a portfolio manager in Toronto and the author of the book Bullshift, How Optimism Bias Threatens Your Finances. Bullshift is available online and in bookstores everywhere. The opinions expressed in this podcast should not be construed as investment advice. Bullshift, the podcast, is produced by TalkShoe, a division of IOTUM. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.